2023 episode. We got a lot going on right now. I'll put it to you plain and simple. We're hopping on here at 7 o'clock. We're in the middle, bottom of the fourth, LSU versus Wake Forest. LSU forced the elimination game today. We got Paul Skeens, Rhett Louder going right now, bottom of the fourth. Zero, zeros as you can probably expect. It's the best pitcher matchup we've had all year in college. So if I were you, I have us on your computer and I have that game on TV. If you're a smart person out there, you're not missing this episode, but you're also not, not missing the college baseball game of the year. I'll keep you updated on that. I'll keep you updated on that. They're waiting. The, the winner of that is waiting on that berth for a champ in the championship series that will start on Saturday against Florida. It's the Florida Gators. Florida sitting at home right now, resting up. They also got some good news on the recruiting uh, front as well. I'll talk about that in just a minute as well. But I will keep you up to date what is going on in Omaha. In Omaha right now, we're bottom of the fourth. LSU knotted at zero. Paul Skeens, Rhett Louder, pitching jams. Are you surprised? This guy's not. Uh, also, NBA draft literally just started down over in Brooklyn. We got five projected SEC players going in the first round. We got Brandon Miller. Probably projected going back and forth between him and Scoot Henderson at two or three. I think he probably ends up at three in Portland. Anthony Black, we all remember, big, long, great defender, point guard from um, Arkansas. He's probably projected good Orlando. Give some bigger size that guard back that backcourt for the Magic. Uh, then also going to the first round, we got Casey Wallace from Kentucky, Noah Clowney from Alabama, and Nick Smith Jr. All projected in the top twenty or just outside it. So it should be from a first round standpoint a big night if you're an Alabama basketball fan or an Arkansas basketball fan. And I think it's probably the biggest rivalry in the SEC right now. So both those programs are really going to put a notch in their belt from a recruiting standpoint. Most likely going to get two players each from Alabama and Arkansas going in the first round. Guys after that, second round guys. Guys like G.G. Jackson, I would say, from South Carolina. Jordan Walsh, another Arkansas kid. Julian Phillips from Tennessee. Chris Livingston uh, from Kentucky. Kobe Brown from Missouri. And where does Oscar Sheboy go? Where's the Naismith winner from two years ago go? Does he fall out? I don't know. I don't know. I'll keep you updated. It just started. So I, I got a lot going on in this episode. I got to keep you up with what's going on in Omaha. Best pitch matchup. Best college baseball game of the season. Winner goes and has the right to face Florida starting on Saturday in the championship series. We got NBA draft. We got the NBA draft. 2023 NBA draft. Five projected SEC guys going in the first round. SEC basketball. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Also in the docket, I told you, you better have us on. You better have us on the computer right now. And you better have that baseball game on. And if you can do the split screen, go to the NBA draft. Or you can just get it from us. But also, we're going to do a little scout school. I'm going to introduce that series. Scout school. Uh, turn thrown around in the personnel family a lot. I know Jim Nagy, Jim Nagy over at uh, the Senior Bowl does a good job over there. I used to do it for my students at Kansas and Texas A&M, Texas A&M as well. So just kind of doing a little scout school. Uh, we'll be going through the month of June through July. Hopefully, if everybody likes it, we're going to have my friend uh, Josh Murphy, former staffer at the University of Georgia, former staffer at the University of Washington, working for Mark Rick, Kirby Smart, Chris Peterson, has a lot of good intel. He'll he will join the show. He's going to help us break down some guys. Uh, you may ask, what film are we going to be breaking down, Dave? What what film? That's a good question. Like I said, every Thursday, just Thursday. Don't get excited. Tuesday after this one, I think you're going to be real excited. So you're going to want it maybe every Tuesday and Thursday. But right now, we're going to start Thursday through July. We're going to go take you to yesteryear. Probably not go back any further in 2013, 2014. Some of your favorite players from your favorite SEC teams, go break down their high school film. For example, sitting here, we're going to break down three guys today. This isn't going to be one of them, but Joe Burrow. We're going to break down guys like Joe Burrow, 
from Athens High School in Ohio. We're going to go back and watch that high school film. Uh, just talk about what we remember from that recruitment. Just show you what they look like just from an elite specimen. The defensive lineman we're going to be watching today is one of my favorite players, probably the best film I've seen from a high school standpoint. I think Josh would agree with me. But we'll get to that in just a minute as well. Then I'll have a little unit position breakdown here. It's a little put up or shut up SEC West edition. It's a position of unit that needs to kind of take that next step. Not necessarily the biggest weakness of that team heading into the season, but really just kind of a team that may have to shoulder a little bit more weight on their team this year. I, it's, again, not the weakness, but it's going to be, hey, we've recruited well there. We've got guys two or three years into the system. We need to kind of take it that next step if we're going to go achieve what we really want to achieve through this season heading into the 23 season. We will get to that in just a minute. So like I said, we'll keep you up with Omaha. I'm going to keep you up with the draft. Uh, but as you know, we always start off the show with some transfer portal news. Starting off, I didn't really want to get into baseball transfer portal news till after baseball season in college. But real quick, uh, Alabama's All-American third baseman, freshman All-American, Colby Sheldon, entered the portal a couple of days ago. He is now going – he committed to Florida. So great day for Kevin O'Sullivan. Guy's probably sitting in his bed, resting up, scouting to see if he's going to play Wake Forest or LSU. He also gets a freshman All-American in Colby Shelton who led Alabama in home runs. An Alabama team that went to a Super Regional. Big pickup for Florida. Colby Shelton was a Florida native, so not surprising. Also, the last update from, an, from a college baseball transfer portal perspective, Alabama Friday night ace Luke Holman also entered the portal. So it's going to be a little tough sledding a little bit for Rob Bond. They're losing a lot. Uh, the new coach for Alabama, new baseball coach for Alabama, young cat. I like the hires coming over from Maryland, uh, resurrected that program, turned them to what they are today, a uh, consistent general team. But he's going to have his work cut out for him this year. I mean, just lost, the ace, lost his ace pitcher. Alton Davis, the closer, announced he was coming back. But losing Colby Shelton is probably one of his first things to do on a priority list. Not going to keep him. He's going to go play for the Gators uh, back in the home state. So a good time to be a Florida Gator baseball fan right now. You're stealing from some other good SEC baseball programs, and you're sitting to wait and see who's your who's going to be your opponent in the National Championship Series on Saturday, LSU or Wake Forest. But like I said, we're going to move right to basketball. And is it crazy we're talking about college basketball offseason roster additions June 22nd? That's nuts. I think the basketball offseason is one of the funnest things now. I think it's one of the funnest offseasons to really keep up with. But Kentucky received some good positive news. Antonio Reeves will be coming back for Kentucky right now. That's great. That's big time. They needed some senior or some upperclassmen to help with that uh, young roster coming in. I mean, they only had seven scholarship guys as like two weeks ago. Uh, I think there were five true freshmen. Remember, they signed the number one recruiting class in the country. Five true freshmen, two sophomores. Uh, they signed another kid. They flipped from UCF the other day, Hart, Joey Hart. And then Antonio Reeves was massive. Antonio Reeves was massive. Solid get. But for Kentucky, is that, he's just a guy. I mean, is that where we're at from a Kentucky standard right now? Is that where we're at right now? We're celebrating Antonio Reeves. He's okay. I mean, he's a 39% uh, three-point shooter last year, which is solid. Gives them a shooter. But again, how many shots is he going to get off when you got guys, the number one freshman class in America coming in between Justin Edwards and DJ Wagner specifically? I mean, Aaron Bradshaw's out. He's a big guy. He's not going to take away many shots, I don't think, from Antonio Reeves. But still, I mean, where are all those shots going to come from? It's an interesting little dynamic. A young roster, one older guy. I don't know. Are we? This is what we're celebrating is Antonio Reeves coming back to Kentucky. I mean, he entered the NBA draft took his name out, said he was coming. He was taking his name out of the NBA draft. He's going back to school, but he didn't say what school. Looks like he went back to Illinois State where he transferred from before heading to Lexington last year to finish up some classes. Now he's back to Kentucky, and we're 
acting like it's a big deal. I know I said massive early, and it is for Kentucky's specific roster this year, but in the grand scheme of things, it's the University of Kentucky. It's Big Blue Nation. I mean, we should be celebrating them getting Arthur Kaluma instead of K-State beating them out for him. Now, I think it may be a better role for him over there, but if Kentucky really wants a kid, they should get him, which leads me to John Calipari. He's failed this offseason. You've heard it. He has failed this offseason. I, I, I always support Cal, but if you really, when he got hired back in 2010, I would expect it a little more by now. And I feel like I'm one of the last guys to get off that. And I'm not really off the bandwagon yet, but like you did sign a really talented freshman class. Again, keep naming them Aaron Bradshaw, DJ Wagner. We got Justin Edwards. They're going to be talented. But how do you not enter the portal at all? And you're going to be like, well, Dave, they just got, they, he just, he is trying to get in the portal. He, he just created the quote unquote collective La Familia, a, a new, co- He's not calling it a collective cow. He's not into the collective. But what this is, is it's a collective out of the boosters better in Cal's corner. Cal wants control now. Don't underestimate that. A little bit like Nick Saban. He wants full control. He doesn't want collectives or donors of Kentucky, the ones he doesn't get along with, to donate money and tell him who's going to play. He's going to go pick the donors, boosters he wants to donate money to his La Familia collective. And he's and he's going to use that money as he wants or tells us he got that trust cow. They're cow guys. He doesn't want guys – uh, stirring his drink that don't trust him or he thinks going to go behind his back or maybe stand up and say, hey, let's get rid of Cal in the next year or two. He doesn't want that. He wants guys he trusts. So he created his own little collective. Now, you're not going to hear him when SEC basketball media days comes up. He's not going to say it's a collective. He's still going to say he doesn't mess with collectives. He's never messed with boosters. But, I mean, if you go watch the 30 for 30 on Cal, he used to deal with the guy who was around the Memphis program all the time, World Wide West. He used to deal with him all the time. So Cal – just contradicts himself a little bit. He's a control freak. He's created his own collective with the boosters that are close to him donating that money so they don't have to tell him what's going on because they trust Cal. That's what it is. That's what it, that's what's going on. But he's so far behind times. We're in the Stone Age. He messed up this roster. This ro- Kentucky, I don't, they're going to be talented one through seven. They're just not going to have a big roster, no veteran leadership, and youth doesn't win now. It doesn't. It doesn't. And Cal needs to at least go to the Sweet 16 Elite Eight next year. I just don't see that happening right now. I mean, Brad, Aaron Bradshaw is already going to be out for four to six months. That's going to limit his development. Not big on – I just think he ultimately failed this offseason. Nothing against him. He's won a national championship. Just a little bit of underachievement. A little Jimbo Fisher. A little Jimbo Fisher. They're very tomato-tomato. Both have won national championship. It's been a long time. Both around the same time. Cal won his in 2012. Jimbo won his in 2013. Little bit over both of them a little bit overpaid. I mean, Kentucky hadn't made it past the second round of the Sweet 16 since our second round of the tournament since 2019. Well, it's six years. It's been a long time. Don't quote me on that. Something around that. Don't feel like looking it up right now because we're in the middle of the show. But Cal messed up this year. It's a little too late. It's a little too late. It's a little too late. You, you gotta be in the collective Davies time. You can't put your nose in the air. You had plenty of time. They should have went and got uh Hunter Dickinson or Arthur Kaluma. He should Kentucky should never lose a kid to Kansas State. Should never happen. They're going to be young. They're going to be talented. But I don't know if they get to the expectations that Big Big Blue Nation has for Kentucky and Cal next year. I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. Uh, moving over, Alabama. It's a big commitment from stretch for Jaron Stevenson. Uh, they got him over North Carolina. This was a North Carolina kid from Seaforth High School. Mom played basketball, I believe, at North Carolina. He was a 2024 kid. I think he's ranked 45th in the country in the 20 in the on three 2024 basketball rankings. He reclassified. He reclassified. So he's going to help Alabama 
add some front court depth. I still think they got some issues a little bit on that front court, but if they can get Grant Nelson in, I, I don't think they're really going to be lacking on stature. I think they'll have five plus dudes, six, eight or taller. They're just going to, they're going to loop. They may get bullied a little bit down low, but again, Alabama has four to five months to figure this out. It's not like they lost Chuck Bet Charles Bediaco in the middle of the season and they have to adjust their whole defensive scheme. They have a while to figure out their own mismatches from a smaller lineup that they can give fits to other teams. But, but guys like Tolu Smith from Mississippi State, Janai Broom from Auburn, could cause some problems for uh, Alabama, like, like a little bit like they did last year. It wasn't surprising either. Or that wasn't unheard of for Alabama either. Uh, but, again, big roster pickup for Alabama. If they can add Grant Nelson, you really like where the tide sits. I mean, everybody – I said it on Twitter yesterday. Nate Oates was left for dead after the Sweet 16 loss, and then he lost his three assistants, Brian Hodgins, Antoine Petway, and Charlie Henry, all the head coaching jobs. And then he had to manage the portal. Wasn't expecting Noah Clowney to leave probably going into the year. No, Nobody did. Towards the end of the year, he probably suspected. But you knew we were going to lose Brandon Miller. Lost Noah Clowney, surprisingly. Charles Bediaco, 11th hour, decides he's going to stay in the draft, and I don't think he's going to end up in the second round. He should have came back. But look at this. Hired really good assistants. Got an assistant coach from the Pelicans. Probably going to hire his uh, – got an assist uh, – uh, Nickel State's head coach to come be an assistant. That's big time. That's big time. And then you have Austin Conch is his name from Nickel State. And then I think you're going to get Preston Murphy, a guy that has a show calls right now to come be your big-time recruiter. I think his show calls in today, actually, now that I'm bringing it up. June 22nd, he's a Creighton guy. I think that's – the writing's on the wall. That'll be the third assistant for Alabama, I think, in Nate Oates' staff. But Nate Oates – I mean, you could argue Alabama's had the best offseason of anybody in the SEC from a basketball standpoint. And it looked bleak in March and April, but you got to give it time. I think people are adjusting this portal, how everything's college basketball rosters extend later now. Guys missed the June semester. Like uh, Jaron Stevenson's not rolling in Tuscaloosa until the July semester, the second summer semester. Probably Grant Nelson as well once he gets his academic stuff in order. But again, basketball rosters are going to take its time. You want to be like Kentucky and not fill out any rosters. I think they're going to struggle from a depth and youth standpoint next year. You got to give Nate Oates credit. Hired two quality assistants, two quality assistants. They need to come get that recruiter. They need to come have that recruiter. I think it's for Preston Murphy's going to come. But man, they, they really, they really did well in the portal at the end. Especially if you had Grant Nelson, you get Jaron Stevenson. You don't feel great about your front court, but you feel a lot better. You feel a lot better. Uh also, heading uh, heading over, transitioning to the next segment. That was our basketball portal, a little baseball portal um, segment before you. But before we get Josh to join on the show, Josh should be on probably the next 15 minutes, 7.30. Uh, it's put up or shut up time in the SEC West. I explained it a little bit on the front end of the show. This is kind of the position unit for the teams in the SEC West. And when I say units, you're going to see, because I'm going to have some skill outside guys, and I'm, I'm grouping the secondary as one instead of just corners and safeties. I'm grouping that as one. Just kind of the units that need to take a step up this year, take their game to the next level. Not necessarily the biggest weakness on that team, but kind of like, hey, we may be weaker. We need you guys to step up. We need, we've need we recruited really well here for two years. The guys have been two years in this system with this specific position coach, with this coordinator, with our strength coach for three year, for, for three years straight. It's time to take the next step. We need you to take it to that next level for us to accomplish our goals this year. So let's lead off. The Alabama Crimson Tide, we're going in alphabetical order. I think it's receivers. Some will blame Bill O'Brien, and some of that's true from the schematic standpoint. But on short passes, hear me out on this stat. Short passes thrown less than 10 yards in the air. Alabama receiver yards after the catch was down nearly half 
from three years ago, from 10.13 in 2019 to 5.44 in 2002. This is this is per true media. Let me repeat that. Alabama's receiver yards after the catch on short passes thrown in 10 yards in the air. Alabama wide receivers after the catch was down nearly half from 19 to 22. Just the lack in explosive plays is what that means. I can break down that formula, that problem for you. That's lack of explosive plays. It's lack of explosive plays. Um, I think a little bit with the time. The leading pass catcher last year was a little bit behind the system. It was Jameer Gibbs running back out of the backfield, giving him space. It's not smart. I mean, it, it's not dumb. Uh, but for a little bit, it was true freshman Kobe Prentice, who was a true receiver, let him. And then finally, Jermaine Burton ended up uh, leading them in receptions last year, and Ja'Cory Brooks is right after. But those are guys that have been in the pro – well, Jermaine Burton's been in college for three or four years now. Ja'Cory Brooks needs to take it – hit the next step. I mean, you remember him from the big catch from Bryce Young in the 2021 Iron Bowl. But those guys, the older guys, need to take the next step, especially when you got a quarterback transition. It could be Tyler Buckner. It could be Ty Simpson. It could be Jalen Milrow. You need to help them out. You need to help them out. Um, it's just you never feel like last year any of the guys, the older guys, took that next step. I mean, in the years, you started seeing some of these younger guys start flashing. Uh, but they also have gotten Malik Benson, the number one junior college receiver in the country at a Hutchinson Community College in Kansas. He's on the roster. Heard big things about him in the spring. Uh, but it's a big year for this unit. It's a big year. I think a lot of it's just because of the expectations of guys Alabama's had in the past with Jalen Waddell, Jerry Judy, Devontae Smith. Guys like Henry Ruggs, guys like that. People, are, Alabama fans are used to seeing that. Uh, you hadn't seen that really the last two years. You had J-Mo, you had Jamison Williams, you had John Mechie. But John Mechie shouldn't be your number one. I love John Mechie. I think he was a great player, great role. He's not a number one receiver. So I really think the last two years they've been struggling. This is it. This is a big year for wide receiver coach Holman Wiggins. It's a big year for Holman Wiggins. Big year. He's got to develop these guys because he's got a good young core base. I like the young cats. I mean, like you said, you got – Kobe Prentice. Here are my other guys. Uh, yeah, yeah, Kobe Prentice. Pulling up the depth chart for you right here. Yeah, sorry, the name slipped my head real fast. I mean, I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, all right. We got Isaiah Bond, Kendrick Law, and Kobe Prentice. Those are guys I'm talking about. And you could have a guy like Emmanuel Henderson step up as well. Those are kind of the guys that need to step up for Alabama to exceed expectations on offense. Now, you could throw in a little bit some more outside help with guys like Robbie Oots, some tight ends, guys like that, the Maryland transfer, uh, Dupreen over there. That could be big as well. So that's it for Alabama right now. Moving on, the Arkansas Razorbacks. It's put up or shut up time for the Razorbacks. Um, I think it's the secondary. I think anybody listening to this show could easily guess that. It's the secondary. As poor as Arkansas was on defense last year, how surprised would you be if I told you they had a record-setting year in sacks? 42 sacks to be exact. A lot of that was Drew Sanders. He's gone. Uh, but you think that would help the secondary, and it still didn't. It still didn't. Um, as they finished last in yards per game in the SEC and gave up over 30 points per game, the Razorbacks. It's not good. That was not good. The pass rush should be fine. The transfer, Trahan Jeffcoat, from Missouri should come help. If Landon Jackson can take that next level, that would or takes that next step. That would be big as well. Um, also, I mean, Dwight McLaughlin, outside of Dwight McLaughlin, I don't really trust anyone in this secondary. Hudson Clark is what he is. He's a guy that uh, gets picked on. I mean, last year, Arkansas allowed opponents to convert 45% of their third down conversions. Uh, and even five opponents converted 50% or more last year. 
that's that's bad. That's bad. Throw in you got a new DC and a, a co DC, new DC Travis Williams, and you got co DC Marcus Woodson coming over from Florida State. Travis Williams coming over for UCF. I've worked with him. They'll play with an edge this year. I'll say that Arkansas will play with an edge this year. Those inside linebackers, uh, Pooh, and then will be really good next year. I, I I kind of I kind of like the linebackers. Here. Secondary concerns me though. That's where Marcus Woodson's going to have to come in. But again, that's on the secondary. Giving up that many third down conversions, um, guys have to start making plays, and injuries cannot long can no longer be a, can be an excuse. It's time for the Razorbacks to put up or shut up. Moving to Auburn, moving to the Plains. It's the wide receivers. It's tough for a first year staff to say put up or shut up. But I think for this specific year, it's definitely the wide receiver. You're like, well, Dave, what about one of the quarterbacks, Robbie Ashford or Peyton Thorne? I think with Hugh Freeze's system, he's always developed quarterbacks. And with some of the weapons they brought in the receivers and Hugh Freeze's scheme, this is really going to help some. This is really going to help some of these wide receivers get open in their scheme. Now, I'm not saying these guys are DK Metcalf, but overall, who is the best Auburn receiver of all time? Who's the best Auburn receiver, even in NFL perspective? Auburn hasn't really ever produced receivers. I think that's going to change over time with Hugh Freeze. But, like I said, with Hugh on the free, Hugh Freeze on the Plains, you had guys like Jair Shorter, Shane Hooks from Jackson from Jackson State, and Nick Martyr from Cincinnati. Uh, and Shorter, I should have said already, he's from North Texas transfer. Auburn's loaded up. I don't think you got any guys that Hugh Freeze is used to seeing, like A.J. Brown or D.K. Metcalf or Laquan Treadwell. I don't think you have that. But just baby steps, and if this group by the middle of the year can just as a unit be solid and get something out of paper. I think they, this could be a really good team. I think this could be a really, really, really good team for Auburn, especially on offense. I mean, again, when's the last time Hugh Freeze has not had an offense? It's a little bit. It's a little bit like Lane Kiffin. It's a, it's a it's a little bit like Lane Kiffin to me. He's just not going to put up bad offensive numbers. And I don't think that's going to change. And I think the way we look at Auburn receivers is going to change with Hugh Freeze because he's always had good receivers. Uh, but like I said, between these portal additions. Of those three or four receivers he's brought in, and Hugh Freeze's system, it's time for Auburn to put up or shut up that in that wide receiver position. I hate to say that in the first year, but for Auburn to go win eight, nine games, like I think they'd like to in that first year, some receivers are going to step up by the middle of the year. Maybe not the beginning, but by the middle of the year. Auburn receivers, it's time to put up or shut up. LSU, head down to the bayou. Defensive line, in my opinion. The defensive line. People may challenge this. And say, well, what about the secondary? DBU, they're losing that. They lost Corey Raymond. They haven't been the same in the secondary since they lost C-Ray. But LSU is its true self. It doesn't have a Joe Burrow-led, fantastic, all-time season Heisman Trophy winner. I mean, think about that. You think of LSU football at heart. It's great. They'll take that every year. I mean, I would take Joe Burrow. He's probably he's my favorite quarterback in the NFL right now. You would take Joe Burrow every year, twice on Sunday. But what LSU is really known for, is their nasty, violent defensive line. Guys like Gwen Dorsey, Tyson Jackson, Barkevius Mingo, Sam Montgomery, guys like that you're used to seeing and hearing down in Baton Rouge. LSU has won predominantly their championship in their championship seasons with dominant with dominant play up front. That's an offense, too. I think this, this year for LSU, just getting off top a little bit, it's going to come down to trench play on both sides of the line of scrimmage. Running the football, stopping the run. That's going to be it for LSU. The secondary, you can talk about it all you want. If LSU generates a bit better of a pass rush, Guys like Sabian Jones can get to the quarterback. That's going to help the secondary in the back end. I mean, it is. Uh, Mason Smith, he needs to step up. Coming off an ACL tear, I know last year it's out of the winter. It's almost a full year recover. It's almost a full year of recovery. He's going to have to step up this year if LSU wants to take that next step as a defensive line unit. 
Sabian Jones, I just mentioned his name. He's another guy that's going to have to be productive. He's going to have to be productive. Jacoby and Guillory, another guy in their interior, if they want to stop the run, I think LSU is going to be fine with their linebackers. I think they're going to be fine at the inside linebacker. It's going to be those front four guys that are going to set the tone physically and help possess the pass rush. That's what's going to happen. The run defense, the, the run defense was very average at times. Front seven didn't get to the quarterback enough. I mean, they had under 30 sacks for the year. That's got to improve. I'm sure Madhouse will fix that. But like I said, the secondary has issues. But that front seven, front four specifically, can really help these guys by affecting the quarterback. Maybe not even sacking it, but like Nick Saban says, it's not about sacking the quarterback. It's affecting the quarterback. It can lead to turnovers. Tell me, if LSU's front four can be a dominant run force, not even dominant, good at stopping the run and creating a pass rush, that secondary is going to look a whole lot better. It's time for LSU's defensive line to put up or shut up. Ole Miss is secondary. That's next. We're heading to Oxford. We're heading to the patch. Ole Miss is secondary. You're hearing secondary a lot. But, look, I'm not an unrealistic guy. And I'm fully aware who the head coach at the University of Mississippi is. That is Lane Kiffin. He's naturally, you know, he's naturally an offensive guy. He takes a lot of risk, goes for it on fourth downs. No surprise to anybody. So he's going to put his defense in some rough spots at times. He just is. He's going to put his defense in rough spots. And if you're Pete Golden, you took the job knowing that. I mean, if you've been living under a rock, I don't know how you'd have missed it, but Pete Golden, the former Alabama D.C., is now in Oxford, in Oxford, Mississippi. So he knew what he got into. The defensive numbers aren't going to look as pretty. But if you just understand and anticipate and you adjust the defense to marry his offense to something, I'm talking about Mary Kiffin's offense, you have a successful defense. So I say all this to know that the Rebels are going to be thin in the secondary. I mean, you don't lose guys – in a very average group already, like A.J. Finley, Tysheen Johnson, the transporter, and Davison Igbenosin, who transferred to Ohio State. You don't, you don't lose those guys. Not have some kind of a drop-off, but it's not a secondary litter with playmakers either. The, the replacements behind them. They have some pieces, Ashim Young, Trey Washington, I'm looking here, and it feels like DeAndre Prince has been at Ole Miss forever. He transferred, came back. Uh, but the key will be generating more than eight turnovers than they had last year. Look, Pete Golden's not a dumb guy. He knows he's he's – Coaching a defense for a predominantly offensive coach that's going to go put his defense in rough situations at times. It doesn't care. Not that he doesn't care that, hey, I'll put my defense in rough situations that are going to fail. It's just he's aggressive. Lane Kiffin's aggressive. Pete Golden knew that taking this job. So I think he's got to get a little bit more creative in creating turnovers, bring, having some simulated blitz packages, bringing guys from different levels. Your secondary is just not going to lock guys down. You're just not that good personnel-wise up there. So you're going to have to adjust that, but a lot of that's going to hinge on the secondary. I think the defensive line could, could generate some guys. Second, the, the second level linebacker is just okay with guys like Austin Keys, but it's going to come down to the secondary making plays, being some ball hawks, give up some yards between the 20s. But Ole Miss has to be better on third down and create more than eight turnovers. So it's either put, it's put up or shut up time for the Ole Miss secondary. Moving over across the state to Startville, Mississippi. This is another unit. I just used Ole Miss as secondary. I told you before this segment, I'm not just doing specific just positions. I'm kind of putting it in a unit for some of these guys. So the secondary for Ole Miss, same goes for Mississippi State here. This is a unit. Some outside threats. I'm incorporating the wide receivers and tight ends on this one as well. Look, it's a new staff in Starkville with first-time head coach Zach Arnett. Defense is going to be fine. He promoted Mac Brock, and they got a lot of guys back on defense. They should be fine. They're going to be used to that terminology with Zach Barnett and Brock. Uh, but new OC, Kevin Barbie, coming over from Appalachian State, bringing a new offensive system. They got four starters back in the offensive line. Will Rogers is back, new system. 
He's been in a spread offense since his brain in high school days. Could be a little bit of adjustment, but I'm not really worried about Will Rogers. I'm really not. It's going to be about the wide receivers and tight ends. And yes, Mississippi State fans, you heard me right. I said the position tight end. They may have had to go build a position room there because under Mike Leach, God rest his soul, they didn't use the tight end. Probably didn't have a position group. Maybe turned into they maybe it turned it into a break room or a game room. The old the old tight end room under Dan Mullen. But now they had to go renovate that because they're going to be using tight ends a lot with Kevin Barbie. And they brought two good ones in, two transfers, Rylan Godet from Georgia. I mean, I don't. I mean, that doesn't mean you're a bad player. You're transferring out of Georgia's tight end room with Brock Bowers and Darnell Washington sitting there. Uh, also, they they brought in. Jorcavia Spivey from TCU. They're going to have options there. Mississippi State fans are going to have to get used to the tight end being thrown to. May have to remind them what the position is. I'm just kidding, Mississippi State fans. I know you know what a tight end is. Dan Mullen used them at times. But the guys on the outside, again, Ryland Goding, Jorcavia Spivey, guys like Rufus Harvey, Justin Robinson, Jaden Wally, they're going to step up. I mean, State lost a lot on the outside. You just don't really replace Ra Ra Thomas, who transferred to Georgia. Caleb Ducking was a sure handed guy. Same with Austin Williams. You lose all three of those guys. So some of those so those guys like Rufus Harvey, Justin Robinson, and Jalen Wiley are going to have to step up along with the tight ends. I think there's enough weapons there for Mississippi State to be effective, especially with Will Rogers. I think he's a smart kid. He's going to adjust to that well. But one of these position groups, tight ends or receivers on the outside, are going to have to step up if this first season for Zach Arnett and Mississippi State Bulldogs want to go as they want, as they want it to. And I think that's a six, seven, maybe eight-win season. I think their top four hardest games are all at home. There's opportunities there. I'm a little excited for what Barbie and that App State office is coming over to show uh, that App State office is going to do in Starville. But Mississippi State's wide receivers and tight ends, your offense, your outside threats. It's put up or shut up time, guys. Got to get it done. And then finally, the last team in the SEC West, the Texas A&M fighting Aggies. It's the offensive line unit, Steve Adazio and the boys. Steve Adazio, the offensive line coach. You remember him, his days at Boston College. Um, just guys do just guys being dudes. If you don't know that reference, go YouTube him. It's a, it's a funny clip, him sitting on the top of the Boston College Stadium, just looking out on a practice field. Man, guys being dudes. Funny clip, go look at it. Also, Steve Adazio, you remember him? He's from Temple. He used to be the offensive line tight ends coach at Florida with Urban Meyer. But yes, it's his group. They have. They're one of eight teams that have all five starters back on the offensive line. Maybe four, depending on how you categorize Cam Dewberry at left guard last year. But they got five starters back, I'm considering. Now, returning production is one of the more overrated stats, I think, in college football. Just, I mean, if you have bad players coming back, is that a good thing? A lot of stats are overrated, but I think that's one of them as well. But that's not the case here. AM has some talent. Ruben Fathery out there at the tackle position. Trey Zoon. Layden Robinson's a guy that's played a lot of football. And last year wasn't good, and there's no need to get into stats. I'm not going to bring it up and other stuff. But to be fair, there was a good amount of injuries, and the quarterback position was always up in the air until Connor Wigman took it over at the end of the year. But now it's time to step up if you have Texas A&M off the line. You've recruited solid a little bit. I think the way it's been evaluated, Jimbo, with a lot of turnover at that offensive line position, is an offensive line coach position between Jim Turner starting out there, um, who else they had? They had Josh, um, Josh with the USC offensive line coach now, and then they have Steve Adazio now. I mean, he's had a lot. I don't really think there's a prototype there. They took size and lack and limited some of their athleticism in taking some of these guys. They took a lot of big guys that weren't very athletic, and I think that's show. But some of that talent's there, and enough of these guys have played in college football. Remember, five starters back, in my opinion. One of eight schools to do that. 
It's time to be the bell cow and step up on this offensive line. They got to take it a chip on their shoulder. This unit's got to start showing up in the offseason. It's got to start showing up in the offseason with a strength and conditioning coach. This offensive line unit's going to be really key for the Aggie success this year. And if Jimbo Fisher retains his job, point blank, that's what it's going to come down to. And if this marriage with Bobby Petrino is going to work, it doesn't matter what they do scheme-wise outside. They run a bunch of Seattle routes, uh, now screens, whatever. It doesn't matter. The offensive line's not protecting Connor Weedman or – they're establishing the line of scrimmage so they can get in simple throws and make Connor Weedman's life a lot easier. It's going to come down to this offensive line. So Texas A&M's offensive line, it's time to put up or shut up. Appreciate you taking the time. I hope you enjoyed that. On Tuesday, we'll go over the SEC East uh, put up or shut up. I'll go by position slash unit. I hope you like that. I'll put some of those clips out on social media. But it's time. It's time to bring Josh Murphy in. Let me Let me get him in here. Let me copy that link. Let me email it over to him. He will be joining the show in just a moment. But why? But while we're waiting, let's see what this. Let's see what. Let's, let's see what. Let's see what's happening down in Omaha. I'm gonna pull that up for you. We're waiting on Josh to come in and do our new Scout School um, segment that's gonna go through July. Remember, I think it's gonna be a really fun segment for everybody. I think you're really gonna enjoy. It. It's gonna take you. Really- Checking the score. We got a 0-0 game, top of the seventh. Well, man, we still got Rhett Louder. We got uh, Paul Skeen still just dealing. Top of the seventh, 0-0. Wake Forest is batting uh, right now, 2-2 count. So I'll keep you updated on that. Uh, Let's go from an NBA draft standpoint, what we're looking like. We're Josh. All right, no surprise here. Victor Webangama, Wimby. He, he went number one to San Antonio Spurs. Brandon Miller, Michael Jordan, the GOAT, decided to go with Brandon Miller, the Hornets. I mean, Charlotte's in Alabama town now. You got Bryce Young with Carolina. You got Brandon Miller with the Hornets. It, it's a, it, it is an Alabama town now. Portland took Scoot, Scoot Henderson. Remember, it was up for debate, the two and three spots. And then the Rockets have Amen Thompson. The next guy from the SEC should be Anthony Black. I'm expecting top ten uh, from Anthony Black here. That's the update from the NBA draft. Let me see where Josh is. Murph. You got me? I got you. You got me. Hey, here I am. Here. Murph, welcome to the show, baby. What's up, man? I'm, I'm sorry. Got you on. So 7.30, we got you on at 7.40. It's not too bad. It's not, not too bad. bad. Hey, we do a live show. You have some technical stuff. But, hey, we evolve, we adapt. But, hey, Josh Murphy joining us. I told you at the top of the show, former – uh, Georgia staff, recruiting staffer, former Washington staffer. I mean, if you really want to put Josh's – the head coaches he's worked under, I mean, there aren't many people who have better head coaches. Mark Rick, Kirby Smart, uh, Chris Peterson, always been jealous he's worked for him. But, again, Josh, if you want to introduce yourself to everybody, where you're from, what's kind of your background, how you got into college football before we get in and kind of go back to the yesteryears. Yeah, no doubt, man. Well, yeah, again, uh, I appreciate you having me on here. It's 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 awesome getting to see you do this and and uh, listen to you talk some ball and talk some SEC stuff. So uh, happy to be on here, man. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm from uh, Savannah, Georgia. Um, I went to UGA where I was a uh, sports management major. Started working uh, for Coach Rick. Uh, like Dave said, got to got to work in uh, college football for for a lot of. Uh, big time names, a lot of a lot of assistant coaches that went on to be, you know, you know, head coaches, Shane Beamer and and Mel Tucker and Sam Pittman, Jeremy Pruitt. You know, it's just how loaded, uh, you know, Georgia was at the time. Kirby Smart, obviously. 
Uh, so I spent, uh, not to mention all the other, Thomas Brown's the OC for the Panthers now. So, I mean, just the, the amount of guys that that were part of those staffs that went on to, to be elsewhere is, is pretty incredible. And then, uh, like Dave said, I, I got hired um, by University of Washington uh, the year they made the playoffs versus Alabama. So uh, it was nice. I was in, I was in Athens, uh, drove over to Atlanta, hopped a plane, uh, to Seattle, and I was uh, and I was there for a couple years, um, where I worked with Coach Pete, and uh, got to be a part of some good teams there, and, and eventually uh, resigned in 2020 as the uh, director of on-campus recruiting, and got out of the that part of recruiting uh, completely, and and then ever since it's kind of bounced around. You know, obviously COVID was a little weird, uh, but since then I've, I've started recruiting one-on-one. Um, which essentially just takes everything that I learned, you know, working for all those head coaches and working for all those uh, schools and those different coaches and, and, and basically just trying to take all the information that you and I learned um, working in recruiting, what goes into it, identification, identification, evaluation, you know, marketing, customer service, all, all, all of that concept. Uh, and then basically just flipping it around and reversing it and saying, hey, kids, recruits, families, this is how we find you. This is how we evaluate you. And this is how you can put yourself in the best position to succeed. So. Basically, it's, it's just taking uh, the concept that we did working in recruiting departments and, and flipping it and, and, and giving back to kids to, to allow them um, a, a space to, to have, you know, high level recruiting information, understand how this thing works from the kind of the highest level of football and do so from somebody who's been in the building and, and, and really kind of understands the ins and outs of the process and then uh, really trying to do it in a way that it's accessible for everybody. So. That's that's my little spiel, and and that's why I'm here. So Josh, so you always kind of dream of getting into the personnel side of things. Like it was kind of your like growing up, or did you just kind of feel like you fell into it, just being a Georgia football fan. I mean, it, it root of it. I always kind of hated when people not hated. That's a strong word. I always just kind of um, disliked a little bit in football. It's like don't be a fan. It's like well, we all kind of at some point got into this because you're a fan. Now again, you can't be to making decisions emotionally, and I think that. Is a little bit from a fan, but a little bit. We all get into it. We're a little bit of a, like because of our uh, childhood growing up cheering for Alabama, cheering for Georgia, whoever it may be. Right. Yeah. yeah no doubt. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I I grew up a Georgia fan. We had season tickets my whole life. Um, my dad, uh, my dad, and my mom. So you know, their first year at, at Georgia was 1980. Uh, obviously, pretty good year to be in Athens. Um, kind of it set a it set a standard for the rest of my life pretty much my dad was at you know in Athens in 1980 you got you got uh Georgia and Herschel Walker and, and that whole thing's going on you got Dominique doing his thing on basketball you got B52s and you got uh REM doing their deal on the music scene so Athens was, was pretty popping when my parents were there and uh definitely uh became something that we you know we went to, to the Georgia games my whole life. So yeah, definitely grew up Georgia fan, grew up um, going to games, uh, played high school football, did that whole deal. And uh, really, um, yeah, yeah, I, I always want to be a GM. That was, I always want to be a GM. Uh, you know, I, when I play, when I played Madden a lot growing up, I really enjoyed uh, the franchise mode. That was kind of what I liked more so than actual playing the game. I liked the rosters. I liked the development. I like, the, the pieces that go into it, the mismatches and, and all right, you know, we got this, what are we missing that whole deal? So yeah. Uh, you know, coaching and that whole thing never was, was that interesting to me in terms of, you know, a football career, but being a GM uh, evaluation, um, you know, kind of everything that goes into scouting, you know, the roster management construction, 
Uh, that was definitely from an early age. Uh, when I decided I wanted to work in football, that was always the direction I wanted to go. Yeah, I think that's why we all kind of get in the team building aspect. And I think sometimes me and you talk off the phone all the time, off the record. I, from a team building aspect, I just feel like sometimes the colleges could do a better finding out about the kid and what makes it tick. I think that's a little bit lost in college football. What do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, – and I think it's a unique industry because it's it's basically you, – you get things used against you if, if you aren't doing – so basically – uh, in-state school doesn't offer, but outside, out, out-of-state school does offer. That may be used against you, but the rules aren't the same, right? When you're in-state, you got to slow play a little bit because there's relationships and the, you know. So so much of football is react like they did it, so you have to do it. And yeah. I think that's kind of sped up the timeline for a lot of people. It's kind of changed things now with NIL and transfer portal. You don't want to make anybody mad or upset because they can get in and out real quick. They may have a better deal over here. Like, hey, we got to. What are we going to do over here? So I, I think you know it's definitely changed so much that it's hard to do your due diligence on the front end because you're just trying to get your hat in the ring just to compete in the first place. But I, I do think, um, you know, programs that have an identity and, and know what they're doing and how they're doing, and no matter what everybody else is doing, we do our deal. I think those programs, you know, have a, have the ability to kind of, um, you know, carve out a niche and be different. And I, and I think that's what we did at, at UW really well. You know, when, when everybody was offering you know, 400, 300, 400, 500, what, 500 people. We were, we, we prided ourselves on offering 75. We pride. Oh, Murph, and I, Murph, pause you real fast. I bet you could mean you guessed two top two, three teams that you'd always see on an offer report, like yeah, right. weekly. It would be Kansas before yeah. I worked there, before I worked yeah, there. Kansas, yeah. Michigan, and Tennessee. I say, Tennessee was the one. Yeah, Tennessee. Tennessee under Butch Jones. I mean, Break my break, if you baby. Walk on campus, you may you may be holding a verbal offer. Hey, buddy, <laughs> you like football? No, can you, it, tie it, can you tie your cleats on? Right. Um, so you know it, it was, a, but again, like in that era, like it's it's such a you got to you, you want to throw your hat in the ring. You don't want to make a kid upset. You want to make sure that you're doing what you're supposed to, and that is an approach. Um, it's not an approach that you know, like I, I would personally do as a recruiting department because I do think you lose some of the the personal. Uh, touch and I think when yeah. you have so many kids you're recruiting it's hard to to kind of um as a staff kind of swarm around them and recruit them you know as a one big tandem when you got 400 500 300 even you know 250 300 it's a lot of kids versus 112 115 120 whatever it is right so I, I think there is that blend because in the NIL portal era um to be so selective, like if you miss on some guys that can really end up hurting you and you may not have, you know, the quality guys behind it to, to, to do something about it. So I, I do think um, part of the reason that it is hard to do your due diligence and it is hard is because of the timeline that's been created. But if you can have a staff that you trust and you'll have a good relationship with your coaching staff, I think certainly there is a blend where you can slow it down and, and have a little bit more of a slow play to get to know who you're recruiting. Because I do think also within the portal, you know, era. If you do the the front end stuff right, it makes the back end stuff a lot easier, right? If, if the kids you bring in, the families feel comfortable if they know the deal. You know, I think when you get you know money and and playing time and blah blah blah, when you're pushing that, you know, as part of the selling point, 
that can change real quick. But if you're selling your school, your continuity, your staff, your future, you know, your your past, even who you put in the league, your your all or, or, or what you've done positionally, yardage wise, blah, blah, blah. Right. If that's part of the, the main selling point and families understand what they're buying into and it's stuff, whatever, you know, yeah, you can make it work. But when it's um, you know, a lot of kind of the bells and whistles up front, I do think it's you see, you know, on the back end, maybe some more musical chairs than than maybe you know you used to see. Absolutely. All right. Well, kind of told the fans beforehand and before before we get to it, just a quick update, guys. So we talked about the NBA draft a little bit. The next SEC player was off. Anthony Black did go at number six to the Magic. So they got themselves a big guard. LSU and, Bat- and Wake Forest still not at 0-0, I believe, going to the eighth. Uh, winner will go face Florida in the College World Series. But, Mark, so me and you, Josh, got on, me and Josh got on the phone yesterday, got on the horn, tested this out. So don't think we weren't prepared coming in with the technological stuff. It happens. So we were prepared. We got our three guys that we picked out. Again, Josh, what did we say? We didn't really want to go further than 2014 or 15, really keep it uh, kind of in the modern era when we were around. So we had some connections to these recruitments, and these are some guys you see playing on Sunday now. So I'm going to share my screen here. We're going to start watching. We're going to lead off. I'm just going to spoil it for you. Jonah Williams here. And the three guys we'll watch will be Jonah Williams, who everybody remembers from California, Folsom High School, off to tackle, ended up going to Alabama. Next, we'd have Derek Brown, defensive tackle from Lanier High School in Buford. I mean, he ended up going to Auburn. I mean, just one of the – Josh, I mean, I, I quoted you earlier a little bit for you on air, but, again, I, I'm with you. One of my favorite films of all time. We'll get to that in just a minute. And then, finally, Roquan Smith, linebacker from Montezuma, uh, Georgia, Macon County. Kind of got the Georgia – kind of got the Georgia thing started at linebacker. These are Buckus Award winners that Glenn Schumann's kind of produced really since who? Monty Rice, uh, Channing Tindall, guys like that, uh, N'Kobe Dean. Kind of got it started. It's kind of the Dante Hightower of Georgia or Rolanda McLean from Georgia. But let me share the screen real fast. We're going to start off with Jonah Williams, walk you through some of that film a little bit. Just kind of talk about his recruitment because me and Josh were both at Georgia at the same time this was going on. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think and, – and kind of to expand while you're, while you're pulling it up, I think – you know, Good, Mark, can you see this? Oh, yeah, I'm in. I can see it great. That's great. Hey, what, that's a good pick. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, like you said, you know, within this – you know, we have experience with these guys and we have experience, obviously, in this industry. Um, so it is kind of cool to contextually, you know, go back down memory road and oh my God, and see, uh, you know, what made some of these guys the, the freak athletes and the first round picks that they were. And, yeah. And Murphy, I'll be like, last night after me and you talked, uh, went back and watched the high school film, some of the college stuff, and some of their NFL stuff, these three guys. Jonah Williams really does. I feel like he's he is strong, he's got natural strength. But the thing it always was like, just fun to watch with him is you could tell, especially for offensive line, he's a real smart guy, real high football intelligence guy. He learned, he knows how to play with leverage. His hand placement, I think, for a high school kid was unbelievable. His twitch. I feel like yeah. he wasn't really just a mauler or an overly nasty guy, but I feel right. like he understood understood how to play the position. Like on their outside zones and stuff. I saw someone was talking about it with the Bengals. It was like he was very smart and knew just how to wash down. Like if he couldn't cut off a guy, he was just like, you know what? I'm gonna let this guy play his leverage against him. Like, you know, I feel like he doesn't like try to overly just dominate. Kind of a finesse offensive lineman. I mean, Murph, what's some specific things you remember just from this tape or his recruitment? Because remember, it came down to just from looking it up, ended up, everybody knows he went to Alabama. If I remember right, the final three, he wanted to go to school in the SEC. It was between Georgia, which I would say was us at the time, but then Alabama, and then I believe Auburn was his uh, third school. Is, did I remember that correctly? 
I, I know the SEC swing. I know that there was some familial element of being in the Southeast at one point. Parents were from Atlanta or something. I, I remember he used to work out under a Georgia flag, maybe in his home gym. There, there was something that there was a Georgia flag. There was an East Coast connection. There's a Southeast connection. And I think just at the time, too, just, you know, obviously the SEC has kind of had its, its stranglehold on, on college football for a while at this point. But, you know, just where – you know, maybe Georgia was trending, you know, I forget where maybe Florida was at that time, Alabama, LSU, obviously, you know, AM. I don't know if that's the Johnny Manziel era around that time, Kevin Sumlin. So, you know, I, this was kind of that time, if I remember right. Uh, I don't really like mentioning names of the guys on our staff that were there because we'll get into that in a minute. But we like it was Mark Rick was it? Uh, Georgia, Brian Schottenheimer was the OC, just kind of painting the picture for the people listening. For Kirby, yeah. uh, offensive line coach, I think the guys that recruited him were, uh, I believe it was Mario Cristobal and Taj Lapoy, probably was the area coach, I'd assume, over there back then at Alabama. Then Auburn had, uh, what's his name, J.B. Grimes, I think was the offensive line coach back then for Gus Malzahn. So that's kind of, I think that was kind of the stage of the staff then. Was Georgia Rob Sale at the time? Or is it Will Rob, Georgia was Rob Sell. He was, it was Rob Sell at the time. Brian Schottenhaber and Rob Sell were the two. We remember we didn't at Georgia. We didn't really have, um, we didn't really have any uh, area recruiters out there in California on that staff. No, 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 not at all. And that, but that, that, but that's even a good point too, right? Like I think so much of what uh, you know, I think the emphasis on us even watching this tape and and, and going back through some of these guys who were studs and, and went on to be dudes, right? Is is we're trying to peel back the curtain into this whole process as a whole. And I think, you know, even like you said, area recruiting and how this whole thing even shakes out and how, you know, a guy from California ends up in the SEC. And, and in this particular case, it, it was a, you know, kind of uh, a familial background. There was something there, but it's, it was, it was for a long period of time, it's rare for guys to go, you know, from uh, Georgia, Alabama, you know, Florida, whatever, and go out to California and pull those guys from, you know, Antioch or Folsom or, or any of these, you know, big time schools, modern day. Right. So uh, I think you, you've seen over the last couple of years, obviously, the social media and huddle and everything kind of expand, you know, how recruiting works. And, and really, you know, obviously the, the television rights, you know, kids in Folsom can see every Alabama game every single Saturday or see every Georgia game every single Saturday. And that maybe is different from when, when we were kids, you know. So I think, you know, when we got into recruiting, it was kind of the the changeover from DVDs. It was the the move from DVDs to, to huddle. It was the boom of Twitter. Coaches are getting on Twitter. Facebook is kind of getting phased out in terms of how recruiting goes. So I, I think photo, you know, photo shoots were just jerseys. Oh yeah, oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I still have a. I saw my picture uh, of my first photo shoot I ever, uh, where I laid out the jersey and, and I was making it all nice. I found it the other day from 2014. I was like, man, things have changed in the last nine years, huh? No. And then this was at the time when the SEC was dominating. I think that uh, one of these years, Ohio State, Oregon in the national championship, I think the sandwich okay. was in that. But besides that, I think yeah. it was the first time in years since the 06, I think from 06 to 13, an SEC team played a national championship from then, I think. The start of okay. the Florida leak, Tebow to all the right. way with like Gus. Uh, and Auburn played Florida State and Jimbo. With them. I think it was that long. So the SEC was kind of like in your face as a college football, like as a recruiter right. at that point. Like it was, it was always getting that NFL logo if an SEC uh -huh. is a staffer. Like, you know, if you're a personnel guy or a coach and you go work in the NFL, it stays for you a while. I think these guys kind of thought of it, these prospects from a recruiting standpoint. But Murph, you know, it was like the biggest story. We were kind of talking about it last night. And it reminded me of this kid. 
hmm. was when he came for a spring practice, I believe. Um, and he was kind of turned off by, I think, I don't think he wanted the in-your-face. And, Murph, Josh, you correct me if I'm wrong. <clears throat> their offensive line coaches are very interesting people. Always been very. In, I think they're always they're one of the smarter coaches out of the ten full times, in my opinion. Very intelligent. They all have their little quirks or certain things they look for um, in players. And they talk to their offensive linemen, but it's a little bit like uh, they're on their ass. Like it's a little bit of like you, you wouldn't want your mother or sister around a little bit. So I remember this kid being taken around by one of our recruiting staffers to his offensive line individual position unit. And we mentioned, I mean, you said it earlier, but the, the offensive line coach at the time, I think was using some foul language, cursing like a sailor a little bit. I think that turned that kid off a little bit. I, I don't know why, because Mario Cristobal is kind of a little bit like that too. Brent Key, I've never been around Brent Key, but I think he was a, one of the off, guys on the offensive line as well. Offensive line as well. But again, I remember that he wasn't a guy that took to yelling well. I, th- I didn't think he really liked that or a guy that was like a uh, engineer, like uh, Joe Kynes, if you know what I'm talking about, the former Alabama DC, it's kind of like an engineer uh, operator. You know what I mean? He just wasn't a guy that I think was going to take to, I shouldn't say hard coaching, just unnecessary uh, verbal abuse, maybe, would be a way to put it. Well, um, well you know, like the thing that that is interesting that, that I didn't necessarily, like, you know, leaving the Southeast and going to work in the Pac-12, um, you know, you just got you, it's a different style of kid. It's a different style of personality. And in and, and, and the southeast, the culture of football and the culture of, of what, um, you know, I mean, you still got small towns that shut down on Friday nights. Like it, it is still very much with ingrained within the sub, southeastern culture. And 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 I think there's a certain disposition that has just been a part of the football culture for for a long time. And, and I don't think that necessarily that is the culture on the West Coast. I don't think that's what it is, you know? So, you know, obviously some kids may respond better to it and, and, and people may be more, you know, uh, you know, more prone to that type of coaching. Um, but really, I think, you know, from a cultural shift, from a from a tonal shift, I, I can see in that moment, you know, if you're going on a tour and you're kind of just checking things out and that's your first impression, it's like, oh my goodness, this is going to be my guy for the next four or five years. I get if, if you know, and, and I think really more than anything, you know, I think he probably loved Alabama more so than that one, you know, any single incident changing, you know, anything yeah. too, too much. But I do think if you're coming over from the West Coast and you're not used to that type of coaching, you're not used to that style of of I'm going to get after you, I'm going to get in your ass type thing. I think that it can be a little shell shocking, uh, you know, a little shell shock if if you're not prepared for that. And if you don't have that relationship kind of pre-established, I think. And that's that's to your point, too. Like we didn't recruit. Um, we didn't recruit California at that time. We didn't really recruit outside of the yeah. Southeast. Like it was a big deal when we went into Langham, Texas and, and, and got Tennille Carter, right? Like, oh, we got Tennille Carter from Langham. Um, so like we weren't really going West. We weren't really certainly not going to California. Like I remember it was a deal when we uh, somebody got, we got a guy from California. It was like the first guy since 1980, you know, it was something, a crate, you know, a, a long period of time. Um, and it was like a story that people needed to tell. So I do think, you know, certainly within um, just the recruiting landscape, I, I think more than anything, it's the, it was the culture shock, the singular incident. And I think as he went on with the rest of his recruiting trip, things kind of settled down. And at that time, Alabama was was Bama. And it, it was kind of hard for anybody. And he know. always kind of handled it around the building. Remember, Martha, two times a year. He always handled himself like a, a 
a pro, I guess you would say, from a high school standpoint, as much as hey, a pro as you could be at that age. Was it? Uh, was that Troy? Was Troy Taylor his high school coach? He may have been. That he may have been. That, I don't know. Full head coach, maybe. Um, but, well, no, but I do remember. We, we thought we, we thought we had a great shot because you are right. I do remember the whole story of. Uh, him working out under a Georgia flag. And like, I had family in the Atlanta area. I think that the Southeast was, a, you knew he was going to the SEC. I don't think USC and them in Oregon at the time really even knew. I think uh-huh. it was for sure. But again, though, he was just kind of a classic fit at Alabama. I think he came in immediately and just kind of fit that culture. Like, He's incredible. I just, I mean, just watching this, I, I think I must've been watching his junior tape earlier. Um, but I mean, you. but like you said, I think so. Well, one, Folsom, in California, you know, it's it, for years kind of, you know, they were slinging it around. They're putting up crazy numbers or winning crazy. I think, I think Jake Browning went, you know, it's just like crazy um, history from Folsom. So, you know, it's going to be good, good dudes coming out. You know, it's going to be, you know, well-coached, well-refined. And like you said, you know how many, I mean, one of the biggest differences on the, on the Southeast and the West coast are the, are the big bodies, right? Like the Southeast has big bodies. You you got a, an yeah. abundance of big bodies in the Southeast. That's why you play the style of ball historically that you play, right? The West Coast, you don't have those big bodies. You don't have the movers in 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 volume and depth, right? The way we do in the Southeast. So you play a different style of ball historically. So yeah. I, I think um, you know, seeing him play, he was really well coached. He wasn't out there just leaning on dudes because he could. He wasn't just, I'm bigger than you. I'm going to be bigger than everybody, and I'm just going to rely on that. He, he's he's smooth, and he's powerful, and, and, and you know, he'll gore you, and, like, he, he, and he bends well, and he gets up in space well. And like you said, he's smart. I, I remember he was like a smart dude. Um, so well, A little bit. Like, and I don't say finesse like he's soft. It was just like he had a physical side and had strong smooth, hands. And thought his hand smooth, placement was awesome you know? for a kid that young. Like you said – you could tell he knew how to use kids' leverage against them. Like, it'd be, I can't remember if he had a wrestling background or not, but it's almost like he did. Like, you kind of thought like that. And Murph, I was going to ask you, we talked about offensive line coaches being a little bit – they all have their certain things they look for. Some guy like – you know, some of those guys bend. If he can't bend, get him off. Like, he didn't have any initial twitch, get him off. If he can't get his second foot in the ground, get him off. For you as an evaluator, what is, like, the initial non-negotiable at that position for an offensive lineman from a high school standpoint? I think, I think the, the flexibility and the bend, right? Like I think so much stems from your ability to, to, to get in a stance and, and fire out and move and play with consistent and good leverage and be able to use that technique. You know, if, if you have trouble getting out of your stance, pretty much the rest of the, the play is going to be subject to, to whatever, you know, it, it's, it's hard to do any, you know, the, the, the one thing that the coaches will always say is you can't coach stiff. Right. And, you know, waist bender is a term that's been thrown around offensive line forever. And that really is just when you're when your players basically they make an L with their body. Right. They don't have the ability to sink their hip. And this is obviously not for you. This is for anybody watching. Uh, you know, you, you, ba- you make an L. Right. And you don't have the ability to drop your weight and then explode back out of it, you know, simultaneously. So, you know, for me, I think. And it's such an like you can see it immediately. You can see if somebody's a waste spender. And, and that's part of the thing with with high school recruiting is that like you may have a dude who's a mauler, he may be six five, yeah. three hundred, but the dude can't get in a stance. And and, and and go ahead, sorry. Well, no, I'm just saying, and 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 so much like you have these these big fat, like there's so like the defensive linemen now, and you look at the NFL draft, the defensive linemen are like the biggest freaks out there. They're the biggest yeah. freaks. 
out there. Hell, hell, we're about we're about to move to a freak. Oh, I love them. Yeah, Derek Brown's great, and 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 they're big, they're the biggest freaks out there. And you have offensive linemen that are having to be, you know, technically sound, technically proficient, and, and who really have not gotten there yet, at least not 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 universally, to match the athleticism and to match what the defensive line is doing. Right, like you see the guys in the NFL draft that are really like turning heads and doing crazy numbers. Outside linebackers, D line, the O line has that hasn't really shifted to the O line yet, right? Like there's not that counterpart of athleticism to combat that in the same yeah. kind of swing. So, like for me, if you see a dude immediately who can't get into a stance, then he's not gonna be able to fire out. He won't be able to redirect. He won't be able to explode. You know, everything comes from that. that and, and then again, if he's a waist bender, he's not flexible in his hips. He's probably not going to be flexible in his ankles either. He's probably not going to be flexible, you know, and, and that's going to get into, you know, start to play a little role, um, you know, with the, the rest of the film, you know. And, and to be fair, I do think the offensive line coach, I, to be fair to me, I think this is one of the hardest positions to get uh, to evaluate overall. And, like, fair, I mean, you're recruiting four or five guys at class, throwing the transfer portal now. You're throwing in some of those guys who have more experience. You kind of know what you're getting. But back in the day when we're talking about the 2016 class with Jonah Williams, yeah. It's it's tough to hit on all four or five guys, and I think that's where Auburn's issues been. I, I know we're talking about another team, but going back even when like, Gus Malzahn was there, they never consistently hit on offensive linemen, and it trickled down. To be fair to Brian Harson, his staff a little bit, and I think that's why Hugh Freeze and them. It's not why well, it's not why I think I know they went and got a bunch of transfer portal guys from all over the place, just to kind of be stopgap players. I think just to get them through this year because their offensive line was so bad. And as you know, man. You miss on enough of those guys, and you don't have some kind of prototype that you're looking for, and you're changing offensive line coaches all the time. Like we keep saying, offensive line coaches all have different types. The head coach, OC, have to set that standard of what we're – are we looking for the linear type builds that we think, hey, we'll go put some mass on them in two years. Once, like, Kind of like Iowa does. They'll go take some projects, but they have the history of putting guys like that in the league. But they'll go take some guys – they know going in it's going to be a two- or three-year project. Or you kind of go the A&M route right now, which I'm not really for. They just went and take big – they went and took big bodies. They got five starters back this year. But not a lot of athleticism on that offensive line. It, so it's – it's the head coach has to set that standard so you limit your misses there. Because, like, as you know, you start missing enough on there, on the offensive line, you're going to be on the struggle bus real fast. I will say – and I'm – I'm sure people disagree with me, but well, one, let me, let me ask you and then make a statement. If you're a head coach, what's the, what do you, what, what position coach are you hiring first? I feel like you said position coach. I'll answer this. I, I feel like I would still say this with the comp in the conference. I would say probably matters a little bit. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I was going to say overall overall staff hire. I would hire a strength coach first. Sure, but I know what you're talking about. Position coach. I mean, it's got it's going to have to be an offensive line coach. I trust. I don't know if I would if I was a head coach go hire an OC that needs his own like Now we talk about it. We know him. That'll be fine. But again, you're right. I think you got to start in the trenches a little bit. You need. You need a Rodney Garner. You you need um, uh, I think who's a great who's a great offensive line guy. I think Will Friend's a solid technician. I mean, Stacey Searles you got out there. I think is a, is a good offensive line coach. You need guys. I mean, you need it. Mario Cristobal was a good position coach. I, I think you got to start. 
Now, if, I'm taking out coordinators a little bit when we say that. You know what I mean? I'm talking about the true position coaches that deals with one unit. I'm taking. I'm assuming that's kind of your questioning that too. So I'm not just gonna yeah. say my quarterbacks coach OC. Like, uh, I, I, I would go off the line coach. I would go one of the trenches, but I would lean off the line coach probably over defensive line coach because again, I don't know what scheme we're running defensively. And again, scheme matters on offense, but I feel like those are the tone setters on that offense. Like you got to be physical and nasty up front, but I think you also got to know what what type of offensive line we're looking for. If we're changing it up every year or every two or three years, we're, we're going to have a bunch of misfits right. like all over my room. I want my guys getting off the bus on game day all looking the same on the offensive line. Well. And, and that, but, you know, that even gets to a bigger point, right? With the expectation of, of college football these days and how in and out people are, the continuity, uh, the schemes, you know, it's, it's, you may have an entire staff, like what we're seeing Georgia Tech go through, recruit guys for an, one offense, and then overnight we're switching everything. You got to give them some time to get things back on track. You can't have an, ex, you know, and this is why like context matters. You can't just look at, you know, Georgia Tech the same way you would look at another school because of where they're coming from and what they're trying to do and, and what what the, the turnover with that, that that has to come. So I, I agree. And I think, you know, uh, you know, I think Sam Pittman came in and and was probably as impactful as a hire as, as Kirby made the entire time sure. he's been there. Like, I, you know, and this is zero, you know, disrespect to anybody that's been there. But Sam Pittman, I felt like came in and connected the dots in a way for Georgia that hadn't been connected, at least in my lifetime. It was like one through five. Like I remember growing up, like Trent Sturdivant, right? Or Cordy Glenn, like there were guys, Ben Jones, like there were guys you remembered, but it was the first time that I felt like one through five, maybe one through seven by the- You, you had eight. dudes. Oh, and they were movers too. Like just it wasn't like you said. It wasn't like you said the one-off David Andrews. Now, I mean, yeah, he obviously, yeah. and he was probably you know not overly overly recruited. You know, like these were yeah. dudes. And I remember, like I remember us finding Justin Schaefer and how excited Pittman was because he moved really well and he's big. Or or uh, Solomon Kinley. He loved Solomon Kinley because he you know Solomon was a little overweight at the time and you know need to lose some weight, drop some of the baby fat. But these are dudes that went on to to play in the league and are still playing in the league that were really under under recruited or whatever. So I think what Sam Pittman did for Georgia, it, it transformed everything that they were doing. And, and, and like you said, you know, offensive line coaches are weird, but like in the, the best way, right? Like they're the weirdest guys on staff, but like they're the most fun guys on staff. They're the most but enjoyable. They're probably guys. the closest. They're probably the closest unit with their guys. Yeah, because most of the time they were that guy, right? Like most, I've always felt like. In, in my opinion, that's a position too. You can't go live in the portal, man. For offensive line, everybody is looking. Everybody is looking for offensive line. Everybody in the country. I mean, they're hard to find, hard to develop. You have to have guys that have been sitting in your program as a next man up. They've been sitting there one, two years in the strength and conditioning program. And you're going to have some freaks every now and then that are going to come start as freshmen. But again, this isn't a you can't have a bunch of individual contractors, four or five, even three to five new dudes every year. You just can't, you got to build it up through your system what they want. I think, ooh, man, oh, yeah, you could talk offensive line uh, all day. I feel like just the evaluation process. But I think it all goes back to you got to have a plan, you got to have a prototype, you got to know what we're going into. I mean, I'm reading Jonah Williams' height and weight, and I got his high school height and weight to what he was at the combine. So in high school, he was listed 6'5, 280. At the combine, beautiful. 6'4", 302, with 33 and 5'8 arm, and he ran a 5'1", 240-yard dash. 
So, I mean, essentially he added 22, according to his 247 profile coming out of high school, take that as it is. But but the combine, as we all know, it's official numbers, 302. And, you know, that, that's something, too, that uh, a big miss – and, you know, I talked to a lot of the, the, the high school kids that I talked to. Um, there's a misconception – <laughs> I don't know if it's bigger is better. And that's not always true, right? Like there is something to be said about 270 and 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 room to grow, right? 265 and and room to 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 fill out. When you're over 300, you're 310, 333. It's it's usually, and I don't mean to generalize, usually not great weight. Which yeah. means it's easier to put weight on than it is to take oh, off. So weight and we when we eval guys, it would be assumed that we would sit in there. All right, you guys going to gain 20, 25 pounds in the first year and a half, right? Like we, it's kind of part of a lot of the eval process, depending on your position, right? So I, I think that that yeah, that's a big uh, like. And Jonah looked great, right? He looked great, like he was long, he was lean, big. You know, Ben Cleveland when he came through, same deal, big, long, lean, strong. It wasn't sloppy. And I think there's a misconception with some offensive linemen think, oh, bigger is better. Hey, I'm big, I can move some weight, and it's like, well. You got to be able to, to do it for 60 minutes. You got to be able to do it against the most athletic person on the field, you know. So I, I do think like it's a good point about, you know, his weight and his height and his weight. And, and I think he kind of got docked for maybe shorter arms. Was that was that his his deal? Yeah, he had shorter arms. 33 and 5 eighths arm is what he had at the combine. You're right. That's not that long. For arm. Again, sometimes that can be a little. I was just talking about it for you, Joanne. A lot of these stats, just like returning production, a little bit of an overrated stat sometimes. Like if the, if the guy can block and protect the quarterback, does it really freaking matter how long his arms are at the end of the day? Like it matters, but it does. Like you're, the film's going to tell you if it affects the kid or not. Right. And, and, and some people have chatted in. They uh, Brett Barat earlier. He asked where Big Worm was. I don't know who Brett Barat is, but he's in. He's listening. Appreciate like you listening. Yeah, it sounds like, yeah, I, I, I like the name. I uh, appreciate you listening. Tyler Giles, preach it, Murph. Best position. This is also Ty, Tyler. Best position coach hire Kirby made. Change the culture of that program on the offensive line. Thank you for listening, Tyler. Uh, we, that's what we were just talking about. We agree. Well, well, and, and for that, for Tyler, I think the context with that is, so Tyler went on to be um, the DPP at, at San Jose State. He was a DPP at, at Fresno State. So, you know, he's a guy that we worked with, and, and that's something, too, that, that – you know, we had a really good crew that that dispersed all over the country and dispersed all over football. So, um, you know, guys like Tyler, you know, Trav went with the 49ers, Canals with the Chiefs, Joe was up with Michigan, you know, Debo's out at AM. Uh, I know I'm missing some few. Uh, Drew Hickson was at South Carolina. So we were all part at Georgia as part of this kind of um, you know, big uh, movement when everything kind of happened at the Heck, same Adam, time. We talked about Adam Ray was back there. Adam, Adam Ray, yeah, I talked to him last week. Yeah, um, he's a special teams analyst at Georgia. Yeah, he's still there. He's still there, going on a decade inside Rome while while it got built, which is pretty cool. Guy, guy, I mean, you talk about guy should write a book. You guys should write a book. All right, Murph, we're moving on. Share, we go. We're switching sides of the ball here. Let me share my screen again. We're moving to. I, I'm with Murph when people ask your best best film. Ooh. I've ever seen Murph. Can you see her? Oh, I can see her. I can right. see her. Derek Brown here. And sorry, I should have said Julian Williams is height and weight before, but Derek Brown, again, another 2016 class kid, defensive tackle. Me and Murphy are probably one of the more dominant high school films. You oh. knew this kid was going to be a player. Uh, Lanier High School in Beaufort, Georgia. At a high school listed 6'3 and three quarters, 317, 
uh, was a first round draft pick, pick uh, seventh number seventh overall at the combine. He measured in at 6'5", 326, with 34 and a quarter arms and nine inch hands. So 6'5", 326. Uh, Derek Brown, man, I, I think I have a little bit of an interesting take. I remember his recruitment at Georgia, and then also I left right after he signed with Georgia to go to Auburn. So I saw I was there with him his freshman year at Auburn from really his recruitment for two years to his freshman year. Uh, but Derek Brown, maybe he he lived at the Buttsmere facility in Athens, didn't he? Didn't he? Remember? I really think if Mark Rick, the Georgia fans wouldn't trade this. Let's be honest. If Mark Rick didn't leave, I think uh, Derek Brown signs with Georgia. I'm I'm on quote right now. I think a lot of people that were in the building at the time feels the same way. I think he. I know Tracy Rocker was retained, but I think Mark Rick had a big thing. If Mark Rick is never fired, Derek Brown comes to Georgia, probably has a great year, a great career, just like he did at Auburn. But I don't think Georgia fans would take that trade. I, I think they're fine with their national championships and not having Derek Brown. But, again, this was a kid that was always around the facility, Murph. I mean, what, what's some of the things you remember from Derek? Uh, well, so a lot of people don't know kind of how this whole thing works. So, uh, you know, part of that crew of guys that has talked about, the ones that went all over the country – you know, we're, we're all split into areas and we have certain designation areas that we're trying to find guys, recruit guys, cut them up, get the film in front of our coaches. So I was lucky enough uh, to have a really huge area and work for a really cool coach and in, in Del McGee. Um, so he Del had a uh, coach McGee had a, a really prime real estate in Atlanta. Uh, he had, if you like, guys you guys listen out there, Dale McGee, I know most people listen know who he is, but he's Georgia's running backs coach, was one of Kirby's first. He's been on the staff since 2016 as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, sorry. I, I was kind of Dale's assistant, you know, however you want to call it. Um, so I, I basically lived in the back of his office. So it was my job, um, you know, prior to him getting there before, uh, regardless, it, it, it was my job to cut film uh, in, in that area and linear uh, – you know, was in my area and it was a, it was a weekly deal where I enjoyed watching Derek Brown's tape so much because he did things that 300 pounders don't do, you know, mm -hmm. he, he does, he, he, he moved incredibly well. He, he, he got off the line with such quickness as lateral agility. You saw him catch a touchdown pass earlier and, and he was a good kid. He was, he was, a, he was quiet. If I remember that correctly, like a, relatively quiet dude yeah. um pretty humble but you know it, it's 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 a it's a it's a guy that to this day him Najee Harris Cam Akers there's a few of them that weekly I'm like man what what are we going to do this week because it's not even fair to whoever's playing them and and Derek Brown every week I mean it's just like stuff and the thing Mark, is like Mark, you correct me if I'm wrong on this you correct me I've always put it this way and you, I'll, I'm going to let you take this over for a minute so you can explain this. He's talking about that back room. They called it the dog pound that we were in. You did eval slash cut up tape slash profile tape. Different programs call them whatever they are. They're the same thing. Again, profile tapes, cut up tapes, eval tapes, whatever you want to call them. Uh, it's the good. It's the bad. It's the ugly. It's really looking for like functional movement skills kind of deal. Tell Murph if I'm forgetting something. It's showing some loaf plays. And what I mean by loaf, if a player takes some plays off. Derek Brown's one of the few kids I can ever remember. The pro, the eval tape, profile tape, whatever you want to call it, was as good as the highlight tape. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you, you go back and you flash and you watch this and you go back and watch some of the kid Derek Brown's college tape. I mean, 
there's one of those plays. I think they, they were in the swamp in 2019. He picked up a ball and a fumble and took off and almost had another burst. You talking about his athleticism. There was a play at Ole Miss. He run, they're playing Ole Miss in 2019, I think. He's running on the field late. And Ole Miss throws a screen to Auburn's sideline. He's running on. And just the explosion that he tackles this receiver, like a quick now screen because they sub late. I mean, it was a it was a lucky busted play, but just the explosion of him coming out of his hips, tackling this kid in the open field was just unbelievable. I and mean, some of the plays in the Iron Bowl year, that 2019 year, Derek Brown was one of the more very Nick Fairley-ish. And I, I'm not saying that it's an Auburn player, but it was very like, every now and then you have a defensive lineman that kind of takes over the league. And he right. did that year. 2019, it was it's very impressive. One of the few kids with a cut up profile tape. Looked very similar to highlight tape, and Murph, you've watched a ton of film. That doesn't happen often. No, I, if I'm if 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 I remember correctly, um, I think I I think I showed his t- you know because it was a thing where, like you're saying, we everybody has a kind of a different approach. You know, some coaches say, "Hey, show me the highlights. Let me see what I'm working with first. Eh, if I don't like the highlights, I'm not going to like the lowlights, right? That's that's some of you know, that's an approach. Some people say, "I don't want to see the highlights. Let me see." the raw unfiltered. Let me see who he is. I don't want to see the other one first. I it may taint my, uh, uh, I think, I think some of the, I think some of these fans that listen and some of these fans that are soon to be listeners would be baffled at how their program, maybe not their program, but their rival program only watch highlight tapes. It's, it's baffling to me. We're not going to name names, but again, again, Josh, Alabama, Georgia, the film organization library back there, was unbelievable. We had a great system going down. We had critical factors we wanted at each position. I, I personally, it drives me nuts if you're going to sign a kid and you've never watched full games of the kid. That would drive me nuts. That would drive. That would literally be like dating a girl just on her profile picture on Facebook or Instagram. Just a profile picture. Um. Yeah. It, well, to me, it's just you're playing with fire, right? And and you know, there's a guy that I remembered, I was cutting him up and, and, and he was from, uh, it was, it wasn't Josh sweat, but it was the Josh sweat era ish. Um, and I believe he's a dude from like Virginia, Maryland, Virginia, and as pretty as could be right. Long lean, you know, fast, quick twitch. But when you watched them independent of the highlights, you saw them between plays, certain quarters, you saw them, uh, you know, I, you know, just the effort dropped off completely. The 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 intensity disappeared, and it completely uh, changes the evaluation. Because like he has it within him. I know he has the ability to do it, but will he do it for the whole game? And when you remove the cut up element from the highlight tape or from the evaluation process, it's like what you know you you take out so much of the context of what you're seeing. And yeah. Uh, there is an element of, uh, and I think the way the coaches look at it is like, let me see what he can do. And I trust myself and I trust his environment enough uh, that we're going to get the most out of him every single play. And I get that. But at the same time, as we all know, it's hard to change people, right? People don't really change unless they want to. So if the guy wants to walk between plays and he thinks that's cool, it doesn't really, like no amount of yelling is really going to change that as, if that's not who he is, you know? So um you know, to me, it's it's the cut up and the highlight can be such a distinctive difference between, hey, what are we really getting or what is the upside of the player that we're recruiting? And it's kind of a different conversation. And if you're a fan sitting out there and you may be asking, I don't know, you may not, but I feel like I would ask this question if I didn't know. What happens if you see some loafs or you don't like what you see on the good ugly? Like what happens in these college programs when the position coach coordinator head coach end up watching this? 
and they don't they don't like what they're seeing. Well, I do remember specifically, Mark, you remember, remember the outside linebacker for Auburn this past year, Derek Hall? Mm-hmm. But, yeah. So at Auburn, he was loafing a lot his senior year. They had to call him down. He was at Gulfport High School down on the coast of Mississippi. They had to call him and be like, hey, man, look, this isn't flying. We're not going to sign them. You're loafing. You're just standing up once the ball snapped. Kid flipped a switch. Second half of his senior season was awesome. Look at kid. Went on. He got drafted. forget who drafted him this past draft. But he got drafted. I think in the top four rounds. Had a great year. That stuff can happen. But if it doesn't change and you talk to the high school coach from that perspective, that's how some kids can get dropped. If you're paying attention to your team, some late-minute ads, maybe they're getting somebody that they weren't expected late. But that's how, at least how it used to be. Like before the whole portal thing, it used to kind of you communicate through the high school coach, the kid saying, hey, we need to kind of step this up. So we weren't just watching these eval tapes and doing nothing with it. There was stuff that would go, it would go through the proper channels. Maybe the area coach, position coach would go have that call with the kid and his high school coach. And, and yeah, like, yeah, for sure. And I think that's such a, a big part of this process and, and, you know, if if the kid is responsive, then great, right? That's the that's the thing that like you don't need to be perfect. Nobody like you're 15 years old, you're 16 years old. I think this emphasis on being ready-made finished products is, is kind of blown out of proportion. You don't need to be perfect, you need to be moldable and you need to be able to hear constructive criticism and, and understand that really what people are telling you is is in your best interest most of the time. Not not everybody, but if they're giving you some kind of constructive feedback, like, hey, man, you're starting to, you know, low effort, you're not really running through the play or whatever it is, it's not an attempt to knock the kid to knock them. It's like, hey, you're better than this. Let's let's get more. So I think, you know, uh, like to your point earlier, it's you don't want to see too much of it to be a consistent pattern, right? It's fine to loaf at times, right? It's a, it's a long game. You get tired. You look at the NFL. There will be times where – our favorite players may take a play or two off every now and then. It happens. The problem is, is when it becomes definitive of who you are as a player. And if when addressed, you have a negative reaction, you don't like it, you disagree, you're defiant. That's where things start to, to kind of change. Like, all right, it's one thing to do it and then correct it. It's one thing to do it and then argue against it. And that is a completely different, you know, uh, evaluation within itself, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, and, but, and, and your other point uh, about Derek Brown, he is one of the few tapes I've ever watched with a coach where it was stopped halfway through and he asked, no, 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 I want to see the cut up. And I'm like, no, no, that is that is the cut up, you know. So yeah. incredible. Play. And I, and I give a lot of credit from that standpoint for the development of Derek to Rodney Garner. I mean, I remember sitting there at practice. I always, for whatever reason, when I was at practice, I liked going to watch the defensive lineman. I just kind of like the technician part of it. Um technical side of it but the, the thing I like the most honestly is Derek Brown sit there and listen Rodney Garner if you know him at all he is ripping the freshman a new one when I was there Carl Lawson and Montrevious Adams were the seniors they right. used to get it back in 2013 so they were kind of there as the big brothers for Derek especially Montrevious um and I remember Derek used to just maybe go down with the wrong hand had his had his left foot down with his right foot you know what I mean it's just like Rodney Garner would go nuts on him or he would ha- he would do it correctly, and Rodney would just get on him, or Coach Gardner would get on him just to see how he'd react. And get- Derek would turn around and look. I'm ready to look at me like, what do I do? He's kind of a deer in headlights. Dude, once that guy took off that second year, man, one of the more dominant defensive linemen in the in the SEC's history that I don't think's talked about enough. That 2019 year was unbelievable of his. But again, I'm with you. Probably the best defensive film 
up there with like the Minka Fitzpatrick's Ruben Foster's film was pretty good. Um, got guys like that like in the past at least 10, 15 years. I don't know, Ruben, I think Minka was in the same class as Derek, but Ruben was a little young, a little older, like 2013 class, I think. But no, Murph, so moving on to our last guy. Appreciate everybody joining us for an hour and a half in. Remember, Thursdays, we're going to start this scout school. Josh is going to be joining us through July for this scout school. I hope you enjoy it. Remember, give us some feedback uh, from stuff you'd like to see us add. we got one more guy. But before we do, just give you a little update. So we got top bottom of the ninth. LSU's batting. We're still 0-0. Skeens and Louder just pitching gyms. One out. Remember, winner heads the champion College World Series Championship Series to place Florida. Bottom of the ninth, LSU's the home team. If they score here, the game will be over. And then from an SEC standpoint, from an NBA draft standpoint, Kaysen Wallace from Kentucky got picked at 10th by the Oklahoma City Thunder. So that's where the draft stands right now. Let me share my screen here for our last guy heading into the night. Heading into the night. Any uh, any surprises from the draft or anything? Any any weird trades or anything? It didn't really it didn't really look like it. So I guess the biggest thing was Brandon Miller going to Charlotte over uh Scoot. Over Scoot. Yeah. Uh hey, hey, Charlotte's in Alabama town now, Murph. You got Bry you got Bryce Young and you got uh Brandon Miller. All right, Hello. so uh, Roquan Smith, one of my favorite stories. Murph, you were there as well. Roquan Smith, a 2015 signee. He was a freshman Mark Ricks last year. Coming out of high school from Macon County down in Montezuma, real country town down there. Listed in high school, 6'2", 207. What I liked about him, he played both ways. I always like that out of linebackers. You'll see his running back highlights here in just a minute towards the end. This is him playing linebacker. Just an explosive athlete. Now, at the combine, as you remember, though, he was listed 6'1", 230. Not listed. He was measured 6'1", 236 at the combine. 32-inch arms, 10-inch hand, ran a 4'5", 140. Was overall, it was ultimately selected first round, eighth overall pick by the Chicago Bears. But Roquan Smith, kind of the dean of that Georgia inside linebacker room, where he was the first one to really get Glenn Schumann's Hall of Fame for that inside linebacker room rolling. I mean, after him, who do we say? Monty Rice, Channing Tindall, Kobe Dean, but really Ray Roquan Walker, Smith was the first yeah. one. Yeah, was really the first one that kind of got it rolling. But what's some stuff you remember about Roquan? Obviously, you remember the signing day fiasco, but. Other than that, just from a play, his film standpoint, what was some other stuff you remember, Murph? Oh, my gosh. Look at that play. Um, you know, I, the thing that always – always find out why. It's, it's incredible. And the thing that, like, I think that people um, – I think that, like, one, I, I meant to say this earlier. Part of the benefit of watching this style of tape and, and this type of tape is, is basically they become your benchmarks, right? So I have – hundreds of players that are my benchmark players are like hey what does elite look like what does the best of the best look like so then if this is this everything falls under this line and i think roquan and you know my memory is not great but when it comes to this stuff i think roquan was coming at a time where we were transitioning away from the big thumpers that maybe the dante hightowers the the bigger dudes and yeah, we're starting yeah. To get these up, it was because of the up. It was because of the up tempo offenses. Right. Remember right. at the time they were changing the rule where you couldn't substitute. So it was really, I mean, it was really Gus in the hurry up no auto at Auburn. Remember they would get your 12, 11 yeah. guys on the field, and they would substitute and go as fast as possible. So you keep your base formation out there forever. So you, like you said, he struggled a little bit his freshman year because he was light. But at the end of the day, he started getting in the program. Glenn Schumann comes around, great inside linebacker coach Kirby. They develop him in to the Buckus Award winner. I mean, th th this was this is great clay to mold right here. 
Oh, it's incredible. And and just again, just this is like if you can go back and watch what elite looks like and, and it can be at I mean, even offensively, he looks elite. And this is an all pro, you know, defense, you know, linebacker, right? Defensive player, middle linebacker who's playing receiver looking like he could play in the SEC or, or playing running back or whatever he's doing with the ball in his hands. He's he's a threat. So I think it's. It, it was uh, his explosiveness, his fluidity. That's the first word that comes to mind to me, Murph. If you ask me one word to explain mm. Roquan Smith, explosiveness is the initial word that comes to mind. There is a uh, – I have an image or I have a uh, a clip, I guess, that plays in my mind. It's, it's Coach Schumann at one of our summer camps, and he got Roquan to demonstrate the bag drills. So Roquan's a camp counselor. Um, you know, he's there and he's, and he's there to, you know, uh, instruct the kids, give back, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, Hey, Roquan, get up there and run through the bags and, and show the kids how it's done. And the explosiveness, the fluidity, the, the ease in which he could go down the bags and, and get out and run to this day stands out. And, and when you saw him do it and then see kids a year or two behind him, like he's 1920 and you got 17, 16 year old kids doing it, like not that difference, but or not that big dif- age difference, but to see the difference at the same camp in front of the same coaches of what elite elite looks like and like pretty good was like, oh my gosh, like you don't know until you see those two things side by side. And and it, it's it's translated to the league. Like, and that's the cool thing about every one of these guys. You can see it in high school. Jonah Williams. Was yeah. was clean and 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 uh, uh, long and and spelt and and looked good and, and refined. Like he was not sloppy. He was not. He didn't have to go through this big transformation process. It wasn't a huge learning curve. He looked ready to roll. Derek Brown looked ready to roll. Uh, Roquan looked ready to roll. It's just putting him in the right environment and then having that kind of and then letting his body develop, get some strength, yeah. add some mass. You're right. Like that first year, he played special teams, but yeah, he didn't start that for like you said. But again. I mean, neither did Derek. There's, there's a learning curve for all that. Derek Brown didn't play a lot his first year. He really right. didn't. He didn't play a lot his first year. Really, like you said, I'd probably say from ready-made from start to finish would probably have been Jonah and then Derek Brown. And then I would say probably Roquan would have been the third guy. But Roquan, you could argue, has the highest ce- had the highest ceiling at some point just from an explode. I mean, he's just an explo- I mean, I remember this film. But I mean, they're I mean they're running tunnel screens to get him in space yeah, on offense. Yeah, I didn't find that. I didn't remember that. I I remembered you know the the turn and run and the hustle and the speed. Like I remember seeing all that, and you know it was kind of that like you were tired today, kind of that Alec Ogletree a little bit, you know, where it's like you know safety coming down, kind of body type, you know, a little bit lighter, um, explosive type guy. But I don't I didn't remember the offensive side of stuff like this and. I mean, I'll tell you, I, I, I do. You, you touched on it. I remember the commitment. I remember the confusion. I remember uh, Trent Thompson. I know I, where I was sitting, the gloves, the UCLA. Like, I remember all of that stuff with Roquan. And that's something that, you know, when you look back and, you know, it's been a, I don't even know how I many, a decade or whatever it's been, you know, Roquan, didn't he, he committed to LSU, did he not? Or sorry, UCLA, right? UCLA on signing day. He put, yeah, he put yeah. the gloves on. Because you remember, remember what he wanted to be if he didn't – if football didn't work out? Uh, I don't remember. But, so that's why but, he was going to – he was going to – I mean, not Hollywood, Pasadena, but Hollywood's nearby, obviously, right, if you're right, familiar right. with United States map. Uh, but, yeah, he wanted to be an actor. 
Like, so that's why he picked UCLA, and he was close to the linebackers coach. And I remember last minute that guy left to go take a job with the Falcons, I think. Yeah. Which put it us was, uh, who was who was our inside linebackers coach? Then Eckler. Yes. Yeah. It was Mike Eckler who is now the inside linebackers coach, special teams coordinator for Tennessee. Um, so that so it was Eckler then, and I remember Pruitt saying he went down for the in-home visit, and they're wondering where Roquan was, and he saw him come out, and he was chasing squirrels. Trying to catch him with his bare hand to cook for dinner. That's uh, yeah. I think I've never been. I I've driven through Montezuma, Georgia, but I I haven't ever had the pleasure of dining there. So I it'd be interesting. But again, I think guys like Rusty Mantle. I think Jeremy Pruitt have said that story. Like, yeah, we drew. We I've driven up in his driveway before, and it's not surprising to see him running in the front yard trying to catch squirrels with his bare isn't hands. That a, isn't that a crazy kind of like twist of fate? Really though, it was Dan Quinn, was it not? Wasn't it Dan Quinn getting hired at? at for the Falcons, so it was. So you have what Florida's DC, or was he in the league at that point? He was probably already in the league. Yeah, hey, so I, I think he. Had all that, but I do remember you said. I think he, you're right. I think Dan Quinn had a connection with the UCLA's linebackers because who yeah, was the yeah. UCLA? And it was uh, Jim Mora. Uh, I think it was Jim Mora. Okay, and then there's Mora. I, I want to say maybe Jim Mora then. Um, yeah, I want to say it was Jim Moore at that time. Okay. But yeah, I, I remember he, he to go to UCLA and then Trenton Thompson got in the car, drove down to Montezuma, yeah. and they were close, obviously two Georgia kids. And I think he kind of talked him, uh, kind of talked him into coming to Georgia. Funny how both their careers kind of went opposite ways after that. But I think that, that, I mean, that was the story we, Trenton Thompson, I think was for sure thinking he was going to commit on TV. And I think Roquan changed last minute, but yeah, he wanted to be an actor if this football thing didn't work out, but I don't I don't know if we're going to be seeing him in any movies anytime soon. Hey, I've been watching the Arnold documentary. He's just – Roquan's just waiting his time. He's going to get the league done, and then he's going to do the acting thing afterwards. He's, he's the episodes just, are in that, by the way? I'm on the first episode. Three. Is there three? Two. Just a little bit serious. I need to get on it. It's, it's, it's been done real well so far. Now, Arnold uh, – I'm a big Arnold guy in terms – I like guys that maximize the timeline. And you got to – Austrian bodybuilder turns into the biggest star in Hollywood and the governor of California. It's pretty cool, you know. So he could have just tapped out, you know, doing one thing and he, and he maximized everything, which is pretty wild. So, well, Murph, I'm about to finish that documentary, right by, documentary by the way. But Murph's going to be, as I mentioned, he's going to be a normal guest for us here through July, our summer scout school. Uh, if you want some guys for us to evaluate, kind of keep it in the 13, 14 class range. And we can still go get film and talk about it, talk about the recruitments. Really trying to keep it stout. Guys, at least it went to the SEC since we're an SEC podcast, SEC show. But, again, this is going to be something me and Josh had a blast tonight, Murph. I appreciate you joining us, man. But this is going to be something we're going to be doing every Thursday, so keep it on the calendar. I hope you enjoyed this as much as we did. Murph, before we get out of here, I'm going to give you some final uh, – give you the mic here for just a minute, just some closing comments. Yeah, man. Well, yeah, I appreciate it. I, I have fun uh... – Going down memory lane, checking out the tape, and and definitely, uh, you know, it's even cool. You know, and, and I think it's even cool seeing, you know, Tyler Giles, you know, come in. Debo was Brett Barat, by the way. Yeah, um, and Debo, I don't know if he works for Russia on the side or something, but he's got his Brett Bar whoever, whoever the heck Brett Barat is over there. Hey, I don't need to know. Um, but, but it is cool, though, because it, it is, you know, we worked at Georgia a decade ago, and we got, we got people here from – from a decade ago, chiming in, uh, able to share stories and kind of, you know, again, I think it's pretty cool because we really got to Georgia and really got into recruiting right as things were kind of taking off and blowing up, you know, as the, as the way they are now. So 
um, you know, I'm excited to get on here with you and, and talk a little ball and talk a little, you know, memory lane. And if anybody uh, wants any recruiting help for their own, uh, you know, trajectory, recruiting 101, uh, follow me on, at, on Josh Murphy CFB on Twitter. I, I got some packets for you. got some presentations for you. Uh, hit me up. Uh, I'd love to talk to you. Perfect. Well, guys, I appreciate y'all joining us just as you're out of here. Hey, remember, Ellis, we're in extra innings down in Omaha, so I'm about to get us off here. Go check out that bottom of the 10th here, still 0-0. No other updates from an NBA draft standpoint here. But, again, appreciate you joining us for this episode of Mock 10 Sports. Have a great weekend. Keep following us on Mock 10 Sports for the best information on SEC sports.